Welcome to the Mind Money Spectrum Podcast, where your hosts, Aaron Ogti and Trishal Patel, go beyond traditional finance questions to help you explore how to use your money to achieve the freedom you want in life. In this episode, Trishal and Aaron discuss modern lifestyle security risks. Between hacking, phishing, and scamming, cyber fraud has become increasingly sophisticated. These days, it's almost impossible to distinguish between a legitimate email and an attempt to steal access. They share a few of their learning experiences and how password managers and two-factor authentication help to protect themselves and their clients. Cyber fraud is not going away anytime soon. So never forget to be vigilant whenever you're online. And now, on to our conversation. Hi, my name is Aaron Ogti. I'm a financial advisor in the Bay Area, and I'm here with Trisha Patel, a wealth manager on the East Coast. Hi, Aaron. Great to be here today, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Great to be here as well. So a few weeks ago, uh, kids went back to school, and this year I got cajoled into being the treasurer of the PTA. And the main responsibility is writing out the checks for reimbursements for all the expenses that are coming out of the PTA budget. So PTA does fundraising, and then we use that money to uh, pay for different services and different events. And I have to actually write that check to pay for stuff. And I got an email asking one, one of the speakers that one of the other PT members is trying to hire, come speak to all the students. They want their payment from either via ACH or wire. And my first, they asked, like, can we do this? And I was like, well, we pay everything via check in a big part because the, we need two signatures on the check. And we know about the treasurer signature and the PTA president signature. And this is one of the kind of extra levels of security that no one person can take money out of the PTA checking account uh, for any particular reason. We have to have that double signature. And it's got me thinking about just other security procedures and fraud prevention. And when I mentioned this to Trishel, he shared a little story of his past. And today we want to kind of talk about some of these different things, just different kind of modern lifestyle security risks and especially related to the internet and the kind of use that as a context for discussing some of the security procedures we have to help protect our clients' money and how our clients can feel more comfortable that we're taking as many appropriate security procedures as we can. Like we're not having them buy a safe and put all the money in the basket. Like we still want to be investing in stocks, but we're not investing in railroad stocks. So like we're trying to still invest well for the future, acknowledging that in addition to investment risk, these types of security risks do exist, but we're trying to be as careful as we can. So Trisha, why don't you start off like the story you told me about, I think you said selling a car And we'll kind of move on from there to other things that come up with security trainings and education and what we do to try and mitigate those. Yeah, happy to. So in this situation, it sounded pretty standard. I wanted to 
take a sabbatical and hit the road. So we, we bought a, a larger vehicle for that and we wanted to sm- sell our smaller car. And we thought it'd be pretty straightforward, kind of put it on, you know, Craigslist or cars.com or whatever kind of was available at that time. This maybe four or five years ago. And immediately uh, I, you know, first day I got a reply saying, Hey, you know, we, we'd like to see it. And it's one of those things where I wasn't really expecting to get into this, the whole transaction part so quickly, but all of a sudden I found myself, you know, kind of negotiating and hadn't, and the person for whatever reason, I can't remember right now, but it sounded legitimate, couldn't, uh, come see the car, but they really liked the pictures and wanted to send me a check. And, you know, I, I of course said, no, no personal checks. And they said, no, it's going to be a certified check. You have nothing to worry about. It's certified. And then I called my bank and said, you know, can I take this certified check? And the bank said, sure. And anyway, we, a few steps later, um, we agree on the selling price. I get the check. It looks great to me. It's a, in the mail. It's overnighted to my address. So like, you know, just a day later, I get a check. It's a certified check and I deposit it. I call the bank and, you know, I just make sure that the check went through. And they're like, yep, check went through. Everything's good. And then I looked at my bank account balance. And a day later, I see the credit for the, the amount of the check. And I think everything's great. But, you know, something didn't quite sit right with me. So I called the bank one more time and I said, well, is there any way this, this check can be reversed somehow? You know, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want anything at all to happen. And then, you know, after, you know, waiting a bit, they, they came back to me with the notion that, you know, technically it can, the credit that you're seeing is just the bank saying, hey, we trust this check enough that we're going to put the credit in the account. And then, you know, I said, well, what if I took out that money and spent it? What what happens then? And they're like, well, then you're on the hook. So, you know, what that basically told me is not to hand over the title to that to that car. And I did not. And lo and behold, yeah, over a week later, the charges ended up being reversed. Uh, The check ended up being fraudulent. And, you know, luckily no harm on my end because I kept the title and I kept the keys and everything and nothing really happened to me, but it's one of those kind of close calls where I could have lost a car or, you know, gone through a lot of trouble for a a bit of a misstep. And it it just kind of shows the level of sophistication that um, that's out there now. And you certainly got to be careful. So, you know, one thing I learned from that experience if you're selling something online, for example, cash is king, right? And it, it turns out that some of those other solutions that are more convenient, they can also be um, not fully bulletproof, like your Zells and your Venmos and whatnot. It's possible for those to be undone as well. You know, you'd think this isn't a, a regular check. It was a certified check, but even that could have been undone. So uh, that's kind of my takeaway from, from that situation. I think that you mentioned like just how sophisticated some of these schemes can be. I think that's that's the really hard part is especially when we're online, especially via email, like it's not that is this kind of fraudulent or not. It's like it's the they're so sophisticated, like you can't it's really difficult to tell the difference 
between something fraudulent and something real. If it's asking for some information that we need to open an account or transfer some money that you want to do, or you get an email that looks like it's from a bank that you have money with, like how do you tell the difference? And this is I've I've got a few things I've kind of gathered over, over the years, but the first one like you just have to be vigilant. You have to kind of like the default process is never clicking a link in an email. You like they pause, think about it, just never click the link in the email. I think a big part is like going back, I don't know, a decade. The main concern was if you clicked a link in an email, you're getting a virus and or some kind of malware. While that's still a realistic possibility where they'll try and like download some kind of key logging software or something like that, that's that's a possibility. Now it seems like the biggest risk is you click a link that looks like your bank's site and you enter your bank login information and now they're storing that they have that information. They can go to the real site with your bank login. And most financial institutions have gotten pretty good about adding different levels of securities. That's why they kind of, if they don't recognize your computer, they will say, okay, we don't recognize your computer. You either need to answer these security questions or we need some other kind of two-factor authentication. So they're getting better, but it's still, they're trying to help their customers. The onus is still on you to protect yourself. And so I have a few other things like, like, password managers that kind of why I like using these, but are there any kind of initial thoughts when it comes to protecting yourself, Trishel, that you've implemented that just like either a default mental process or something that you find kind of allows you to feel a little more confident that you're being as secure as possible with your own information? Yeah, I, I think you keyed in on a very good point to begin with, and that that's being vigilant, you know, having that that smell test and often many things that are too good to be true are likely too good to be true. And it, it, you know, that, that was the situation with my example with the car, you know, I I ran into another situation that was kind of similar where I was looking for rental property and I found um, a a good place to, to rent. And it was a, you know, a couple hundred below market, very curiously. But uh, I called up the agent and everything looked decent and whatnot. And I was ready to, you know, move the next step. And I got a sob story on why I couldn't check it out. But everything was copacetic and they could send me, you know, pictures and all that if I wanted. And it, it turned out the person I spoke to had nothing to do with that property. <laughs> that listing was completely fraudulent. They had just taken, you know, some random listing on Zillow and pretended to be the agent for that property. And I didn't go, get too far down the rabbit hole, but it was one of those things where, you know, the, the, I spoke to somebody on the phone and had many conversations with somebody who was basically running a, a pretty elaborate scam to get people to um, either, you know, put a down payment down or put, hand over some sort of amount of money on a property they had nothing to do with. And, you know, this property was owned by probably some, you know, random person who, you know, as a law abiding a citizen had no idea that a scam is happening on something that they own. Yeah. I, I wonder, like, how would the owner even find out? 
Like, I guess unless you finally show up at some point and knock on the doors, like, okay, I'm ready to take the keys and buy this place. And maybe at that point, they have no idea. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I had a little bit of fun towards the end. Once I realized it was a scam, I still talked to that person and, you know, kind of pretended I was on the way and got the, Hey, you don't need to go there right now. And, um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things where how, how would that person know? You're right. You can't monitor every single thing that goes on to the web related to you. And it's one of those things you got to be vigilant. You, that's definitely a good first step. You know, when it comes to the cyber stuff, I completely agree with the two-factor authentication. I think that's a, a line of defense that can at least place a good barrier between you and other cyber criminal activity beyond just your password, which frankly can be compromised quite easily. You know, I think before the the two-factor authentication took off, there was this interim period where websites used to have this like um, this secret image that you picked out where if you typed in your username, then you had to, you know, select from a group of images and say, hey, I'm, I'm the fish, you know, and yeah. the, the website didn't show you the fish, then you knew um, something's fishy going on here. It's another <laughs> type of scam, right? However, it turns out that that's very easy to get around because all a website needs to do is they need to send you to their website and then you type in your username there and they'll take your username to the real website. They'll get the fish and they'll show you the fish. So it's oh. one of them. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why you don't see those anymore. But it, it just kind of shows you that there is a bit of a cat and mouse game going on here. And being vigilant is something that you really can't compromise on. But yeah, as far as what you can do beyond that, I'd say two-factor authentication is a good next step. And like you said, Password manager is probably a gotta have in today's world, especially when, you know, the average person has 100, 200 different logins that they have to keep account of. And it's very obvious that if you're using one password across all of these websites, or you're just changing a letter or two, then it, it's way too easy to hack. Because as soon as one website gets hacked, well, now somebody has your email, they have that one password, they take that one password in your email and try it on a thousand other websites and, you know, even try changing it up one or two characters here or there. It's way too easy. Yeah. And, and yeah, having that password manager allows you to have a completely separate randomized password for each and every one of those 200 websites. Yeah. I think that's the key. It's, it's not it, the strength of the password manager. Isn't necessarily the, 16-digit special characters that you can't remember anyways. Well, that that's really good. The single biggest strength of the pa of the password manager is that means that each site that you have a login has a different password. And so, like you said, if I if someone gets one, it's only good for that one site. You haven't given up your username, login, and password information that to every other site. That's the biggest strength of the password manager. And again, that those 16 special characters do make it more secure than an eight letter word so that like from that perspective, yes, it's better, but it is that, that unique login for each site that really is the strength kind of as of cybersecurity as of today. Um, I actually have a couple stories related to password managers. Uh, the first is from my wife. She was working at a tech company in the Bay area and 
um, she got a phone call from another uh, internal phone line saying, hey, this is Dave from IT. I just need to uh, double check something. We have some pro- some problems with the internet. And can you just like, let me know of your login and password? And she didn't give it to him. It's like, um, this feels weird. No. So she, so she didn't give it to him, even though it was, again, it was an internal uh, call. So like the, the phone system that, that she had on the desk, that it was an internal call. She let either HR or security or her manager, I forget how, she let someone know. It's like, um, I got this weird call. Are they, are they working on the IT? She found out, I think, the next day or later that day, or the, or the, uh, the company had hired a security expert. And they, even though all companies in the Bay Area, uh, all the employees have badges that allow you to log in to the door, um, so you're not supposed to be able to get you'll be able to get into the building without these badges. Uh, so they, someone like had boxes in their hand, and so someone helped was very nice and held the door open for them. So once they were in, they went around like lunchtime, I think. It might have been like they had bought food in their hands, something like that. Uh, they went around lunchtime. Uh, some of the risks, they found a lot of passwords written on papers underneath the mouse pad. Like the, I was, it was surprisingly how consistent was underneath the mouse pad. Um, so got a lot of passwords from handwritten papers under the mouse pad. Once they're inside the building, uh, did the same thing, called several people at other lines, asked for that login. Three people actually gave the, that internal line their uh, username and password for access to the company internet. And my wife was actually the only person who notified anyone else. That's it. Like even the few people who gave it up, like and the people wow. like who didn't give it up, no one actually notified or asked security or HR or manager. And it's one of those things like this ended up being a security expert that the company had hired kind of showing them like, here's some of these risks. But for people in the Bay Area, especially tech companies, it's more pre-COVID when they were back in offices, you can imagine that laptops are being carried around and uh, everyone has those login badges. Like it's, it's, if you're, it's so easy to be kind of casual and nice and forget the vigilance that if someone is dedicated, there are enough risks out there. So that, that was one where don't write your passwords down on a piece of paper. Even if you think it's at your desk and no one can get there, that is still a risk. And so that's why the password manager has your like single master password so that you don't have to remember that one really big, strong password. But that's one of the reasons you use a password manager. So you don't have to write things down. That that writing things down is fallible. The other story, this is like one I got from online. Someone who is, again, is pretty vigilant, uh, received an email and at every point thought it was legitimate. Clicked the link. They took him to a site that looked like his bank site. And he tried entering the username and password, but his password manager didn't recognize the URL, even though it looked the same. And it might've had like a 
one instead of an L or like an uppercase I instead of a lowercase L, so something like that. But the password manager realized this is not the same website. Took him a minute or two, like, why won't my password manager input my password on this site? And I thought the password manager was having a mistake until I realized that it, the the actual URL didn't match. And this talks about that that sophistication. And this is that kind of level of vigilance is that sometimes just that pause, that like something like it's not working exactly as I expect. Now I need to pause, take a break, like figure this out, spend a little bit of mental energy thinking about this and then kind of, oh, actually that that doesn't work quite work out. The URL is not exactly what I expected. Now some some URLs are pretty complicated and so sometimes you don't necessarily want to click the link, but sometimes just manually typing the URL in a separate web page instead of clicking the link will work better. So I, I've done that a few times where I'll receive an email from I think uh, Social Security, like SSA.gov, there's like, here's your, uh, you received your annual Social Security statement. If I see something from a bank or one of the companies that I use, I'll go to, instead of clicking the link in the email, which um, I'm pretty sure is accurate. I think all QuickBooks has done this as well. Like, I need to update my statement to my accountant for, for bookkeeping. I won't click the link in the QuickBooks, even though I'm 99% sure that it's fine and accurate, I will go to my bookmarks in my browser and use my password manager to go to, to QuickBooks that way. And like it's just like that little bit of vigilance, a little bit of pausing really helps make sure that you don't accidentally click the link and put in your username and password. And it's just a couple areas where that kind of that password manager really, really helps in terms of kind of modern cybersecurity. So between password managers and two-factor authentication, so if, do they recognize your computer based on the IP address, and then they have to go through your phone or answering security questions, those two are, are pretty strong and take care of a lot of that extra security work. So I was curious, Trisha, do you have any kind of stories or anecdotes or observations as it comes to password managers or two-factor authentication for yourself still? Well, it, again, the, the level of sophistication can be pretty great. For example, sometimes you get an inbound email and it can be from your boss. So that that's something that happened at one of my prior firms where the CEO emailed an employee saying, we need you to send these funds to this you know, individual account you know, ASAP. And you know, the, the employee said, oh, okay, let me get on that. That's from the CEO. <laughs> and, you know, luckily, you know, at like checkpoint five, it was finally discovered that, yeah, the, the CEO's email had been compromised. And it's one of those things that it, it's not so hard to do be, from a many perspectives. One is, if you've ever received an email from a company, from any employee, you can quickly figure out, you know, what's their metric for emails? You know, they use the last name plus the first initial, you know, something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you have the entire company directory on LinkedIn, right? So you can kind of figure out the email addresses, even if they're not public, for everybody in the firm. 
And then it's also quite easy to go to some website and compose an email from using any from address you want, including the one that you just reverse engineered. So some of these don't require any sort of breaking in, but just a level of sophistication that is quite possible to pull off if somebody is motivated enough. And given that there's enough people, there's somebody who's going to be motivated enough. Yeah, this reminds me. I think if you go back like twenty to twenty-five years ago, like early stages of the internet, email is just becoming a thing. Um, there are actually quite a few people who were able to kind of guess Steve Jobs' email address because it was something like Steve at Apple dot com or Steve Jobs at Apple dot com or S Jobs at Apple dot com. It, it was something like that. Um, like you said, once they knew the domain of any email address for employee, Apple employees, and it was the same format of first name, last name, or first initial last name. Uh, and th- this was like a fun story at the time because they actually corresponded with Steve Jobs. Like it was just a random person. But you move forward, it's like that really is how easy it is to kind of figure out some of these employer employee email addresses. Yeah, and it, it gets even worse if the actual system has been compromised, and you know that that just happens where you get an inbound email and you do click on a link and it does download some sort of file that says you know check out this PDF, and it turns out it's a program that takes over your computer. But but sometimes it's even more easier than that. There was a study. Oh, maybe six, seven years ago by Google and one of the universities, I think University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign and the University of Michigan. So what they did is they took a couple hundred USB keys and they had viruses installed on them and they just threw them around campus. <laughs> and within a few minutes, they started popping up in computers. People just picked them up and threw them in a computer. So 48% of the drives were picked up and plugged into computer. And you can guess what would happen (laughs) if you take a a random USB stick that you find and it has uh, some sort of Trojan on it. It it can literally take over your computer, record every keystroke and, you know, email it to every person who shouldn't have that information. That that's that's a great point. I I, I remember my my dad. So my, my dad was at, he got in the navy, went back to school for IT work, and uh, after graduating, he went back to work for the Department of Defense or a contractor doing um, Defense Department IT work. And so that's like not only is like regular cybersecurity, it's national security as well. And I remember I was telling us like uh, I was one of the first conferences I went to. Uh, they one of the booths had a one gig USB drive. Uh, maybe not that big. I don't remember quite. But it's like this has all of our brochures brochures on it, and it's like, oh, that makes it easy. Like I don't I don't need to keep all these like cardstock pieces, and I can share these with clients if it actually comes up. It's actually applicable, and I can review it later. It's like it's a lot easier. So so like I took this this one uh, uh this one USB stick, and I've like oh it has this stuff on okay uh like i save the things i want and then i 
I remove them off. So like I've used, I can use that to move file. Like, especially like uh, this would have been like pre like early iTunes pre like a lot of the music storage or streaming. So I like, I had to move a lot of songs from one from an old computer to the next computer kind of thing, and it's like, oh, this this USB stick worked perfectly. Um, and my dad explains like exactly the risk you were talking about. It's like, uh, no, you should never take a USB stick that you did not open out of the package and put it in your computer. And it's like that. That's why. Um, uh, the military actually has very, very strict rules on USB sticks, uh, both like um, not being used, not bringing them in, but also like that's one of like the physical checks that they'll do is if you're like walking on or off ship with a USB stick, that's a security risk. Um, I remember there are a couple spy movies that had that like there was like the super small USB stick uh, hidden in the bottom of the coffee mug kind of thing, the the travel the stainless steel travel coffee mug. Um, but yeah, that's, that's I, I I am both impressed by the security test by those universities and not surprised at all, all right. because I did the same thing. <laughs> So I have another similar one where I had an issue with my modem and it's one of those things where you're not quite sure what to do. So you call the, um, you know, the, the, the internet company and they say, you know, what brand modem? And then, uh, you know, I, I got the brand modem and I, I found a service number that they gave me. So that this was a phone number provided to me by a third party. They, they said, okay, call this number and they'll walk you through tech support. So I called a number, and that number, the guy picked up, and he started you know, saying, okay, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Well, okay, turn on your computer and go to this website, and uh, you know, tell me the code that pops up. And then you know, five or ten minutes later, I see the guy like poking around on my hard drive. And it, it turned out it was a complete scam. So, wow. Yeah, this was a source that I thought was reputable. It was a phone number for a customer support that apparently was hacked from the real customer support phone number. And they're just sitting waiting around for people looking for support on their their modems or their Wi-Fi's. Cuz I I I know at my previous company I've used the those IT tech supports that were um, done by the back office, and it's like, yeah, okay, go to the site and uh, tell me the code that you see so I can get access. And I, I guess I trust them because I knew who I was who I was calling. Like, but they were employees of the company. But yeah, like, if the the phone number gets redirected, or yeah, that's I think that's probably the play like. You, that's why you have to be vigilant. It is you can't be perfect, and and trying to ex- expect that you never have these types of exposures is not realistic. It'd be like 
trying to expect never like we talked about the car insurance a long time ago to expect that you never get in a car accident in your driving life is not realistic once you just add up the low probability of something happening times how many millions of miles are driven eventually it's going to happen and this is kind of like that yeah and so you want to just kind of try to be vigilant and there's different security procedures you can take but uh i think that this is the you have to acknowledge that this is the life that we have now so i don't i don't want to end on that like that depressing note because i think there's still a lot of good things that we do especially when helping clients protecting their money so i have a few notes but i'll kind of ask you first what are some of the procedures you follow to help protect clients money or kind of like uh going back to your hedge fund days just like what are some of the the ways that even if you don't other firms might use to protect client money right so you know going back um you know seven eight nine years ago some big news in the hedge fund space was frankly not great news it was actually a lot about fraud and you can imagine all of the stories that came out when you know kind of madoff hit the news and the big ponzi scheme there you know the, the quick background there is about like uh this was like over 10 years ago now but Madoff basically just made up his returns and then it ended up being a Ponzi scheme. So the, the money that came in, if anybody else wanted money, you could just pay out from that money that came in saying, here's your you know 50% return since you've invested, whereas it's just coming from new money. And at the same time, more people are giving him money, but he's just kind of spending it. And it, as you can imagine, that can only go so far. So, I mean, this this... Uh, in particular one, I have a note that goes back to at least 1991. Uh, this is a, f- a fun sports story related to, well, it's not that fun, but it's related to um, Bernie Madoff. The owners of the Mets, or even the Mets as a team, were clients of Bernie Madoff. And they were getting that consistent 10% return every year. So in 1991, Bobby Bonilla signed a five-year, $29 million contract. But instead of paying out $29 million over five years, so between five and $6 million a year, they reached an agreement of like, what if we just paid you a million dollars a year uh, for, I think, the next 40 years or 50 years, something like that. I think it was until he's like 72. And the way the math works, like if they can get that consistent 10% return from their investment with Bernie Madoff, it made more sense to the Mets in terms of the the time value money calculations than trying to pay it all up front. And so to this day, the Mets still pay him about a million dollars once a year until I think it goes until 2035. Went from 1991 to 2035. And they did that because they assumed they could get that consistent 10% rate of return from Bernie Madoff. And again, this is going back to 1991. So he had been doing this for a long time before he was actually figured out. 
Yeah, he, he amassed over $50 billion this way. And um, a, a lot of that just got lost in, in this big scandal. And, you know, looking at the top 10 hedge fund farriers or in, in history, four out of 10 of those were because of fraud, with Madoff being the largest. So it's one of those things where, you know, even with, with the big players that, you know, a lot of trust is placed and things like this have happened. And when we entered this space or when, you know, when I was with the, the hedge fund startup, this was a, a big deal to us. Like, what can we do to, you know, combat this notion? And a lot of checks and balances were put into the industry around this time to kind of combat these concerns and they, they do make sense. You know, one of the big ones, you know, right off the bat is this notion of custody, meaning where do the assets sit? And, you know, day one, we, we don't want custody. We don't want any, the ability to touch those assets. And you, you can kind of scratch your head thinking, well, how does that work? Then how, how do you invest money and how do you deal with it if you can't even touch it? Well, it, it's quite simple, or the, the the model is is quite sensible. The way it, it works is you have another custodian. You know, it could be like a big uh, broker, and they hold the money. So you, as the third party in the arrangement, don't get to touch it. So the money goes from the client to the custodian, and then the only way the money can come out of the custodian is back to the client, and you know, that that's kind of checks and balance number one, just don't take custody of the money. And then the second thing is to have a third party administrator. And the goal of the third party administrator is to be a completely separate entity that kind of is another set of checks and balances. So something that we did is, you know, it's common industry practice these days is something known as tri-party reconciliation, meaning three different parties have to sign off on the numbers before we call it a day. So that means the custodian where the trades happen, they have their sets of numbers. You know, we, the hedge fund have our own sets of numbers and this third party administrator has their own sets of numbers in terms of the money flows and the transactions that happen. And they all have to agree. You know, that way, you know, like a Madoff situation, you can't just make up returns unless you're in cahoots with, you know, two other, you know, major parties in, in this whole triangle. Yeah, I think kind of for clients, that's the joint kind of just rule of thumb. Anything, any check that you're making out to the name of the advisor, it's a fee you're paying to the advisor, whether it's money coming out from the account to the advisor or you're actually paying them directly. If it's your own money that you're keeping, it's like, okay, I'm going to deposit this into my taxable investment account. You're making the check out to the name of the custodian. That's like that's probably the biggest way to just kind of distinguish between those where all the Bernie Madoff clients were making their checks out to Bernie Madoff and he was commingling those assets. I'll let you explain that in a second. But it's like they assumed that was their money even though they're making writing the checks to Bernie Madoff. So that's why we use the custodian to hold the money and the custodian can only follow instructions from uh, clients or the advisor if the client signs off on it. And again, the custodians, the only money the custodian ever sends to the advisor is the fees that they're paying to the advisor. Everything else is they're holding on to the client money. 
Right. Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I set up this business, you probably had the same decision to make, Aaron. Do you, do you want to take custody of assets? And if you want that ability, there's a bunch of other checks and balances that you have to go through. And for me, it was a very easy decision. Like, nope, nope, don't want custody. <laughs> That's yeah, not something yeah. I, I want anything to do with. And it, it just makes the whole process a lot more simple because I don't get to touch the money and I don't want to. So I, I think there's a, a, a small, I don't want to say caveat, but kind of distinction. Um, in general, most advisors or fee-based advisors, they'll have in their agreements that they will have discretion, but they don't necessarily have custody. And discretion means that they can take actions in the account, such as buying stocks or mutual funds or ETFs or selling things on your behalf or selling to raise cash. They have discretion to make those actions within the account on your behalf without the client signing off. So that's discretion. Custody is the ability to take money in and out of the account without the client signing off. And so, no, I do not have custody. I, I do have discretion. Right. Yeah. Same with me. And the, the notion is, even if I do have discretion, I'm not kind of taking that money, you know, to Vegas and not touching it, but I'm following a, a set plan and mm -hmm. that's governed by what we have a investment policy statement. So this is a, a guideline that we come up with, with the client saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's the strategy we're going to follow. Here's the guardrails on how much risk we're going to take. So even though uh, in many situations I have discretion over how I handle the money, there's still a lot of of checks and balances along the way. Yeah. So uh, with uh, with using a separate custodian, what are some of the other procedures you have in place for kind of protecting clients, avoiding scams, avoiding phishing? So some of the things that you follow to help protect your clients. So a good part of being a financial advisor is having a lot of compliance checks in place. And a subset of that compliance program is the data security program. And what that entails is ensuring there's a, that there's a good amount of security around the data that is non-public as it relates to a client. So this can include information, you know, like social security numbers and, um, you know, account information, account numbers, and all, all the different things like that, sensitive information. And the idea is you, you want to make sure that that's secure, but you still want to have the flexibility to use that data in a meaningful way. So it's not that, you know, the data has to be passed back and forth on written paper, hand deliver, you know, between you and the client, but we, we do need to lean on technology. But again, we have to realize that it, it you know, there, there are certain things we can do to make that more easier or more seamless and to allow the, the information to be passed in a more secure way. So, you know, part of that, for example, is with email. One thing that we, we can't accept as an advisor or send out as an advisor it is confidential information. So that information has to be uploaded to a secure website. So I have my own secure um, secure on website where, you know, we transfer files back and forth between myself and the clients. 
Yeah, that's just basically like that's a really good one of those default processes or kind of default thought process. Email is not secure. It's just between phishing and uh, attachments, email is not secure. Uh, so I also use uh, my financial planning software, eMoney, does have the same kind of, uh, they have to create a login with their own password and they can upload documents securely that I can view based on uh, my login information. Um, and so that's why I have clients send me all the, the personal statements that I need to help them put together the financial planning pro- uh, projections. So yeah, it, it's, if it, if the client has one login that the advisor doesn't know, the advisor has a client has a login that no one else knows, that would be a considered a secure system where it's not going through email and allows the clients to still send information electronically. And there's a lot of other versions that they'll do this. You can secure Google Drive, um, Microsoft's OneDrive. You can have passwords to that. A, a Dropbox will do things like this. There's a variety of security solutions out there. But yeah, basically whoever's doing the upload has some kind of login. Um, and the uh, trying to think there's there's one that's also pretty common. I'm trying to think of which one it is. Like do you know the most common one for that? For the password manager or no secure uh, um, sending documents securely. Oh, share file. Share file. That's what I was thinking of. Yes, share right. file. Yeah. So that that's probably the most common one of like you have to create a login to be able to send documents to anyone else securely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that the, there's that, and then also if there's a public Wi-Fi involved, you know, it's, if you're a client, it's it's good to know that if you're sending or if you're an internet user, that is, if you're on a public Wi-Fi, those are very insecure. Your data is quite visible to anybody else on that network. And, you know, that's where a VPN would make the most sense. Yeah, VPN, that's a good call, good call. Um, A couple of things that uh, I use to help clients. One, I use kind of e-money for uploading documents securely. Um, When it comes to... Uh, their their investments. I use SEI as the custodian. So again, we talked about uh, clients write their checks to SEI for their own money that they're keeping. A couple things that SCI has implemented that's a little different from other financial institutions is they rely on the advisor as an additional level of security. So uh, for example, uh, if you go to E-Trade, you want to transfer money from your E-Trade account to your checking account or Fidelity or Schwab. I know they, they all have online systems where you can log in, enter the bank account and the routing number, and then send money to your bank. SEI wants the advisor to be part of that process. And so uh, they make very clear, don't accept instructions via email. Again, email is not secure. So SEI wants to well, actually contact me, say, did you talk to the client? Did you get verbal instructions or confirmation either over the phone or via a Zoom meeting before they send any money out? Two, the clients can't log into SEI and have money transferred out. So if, they, if their 
login information is ever compromised, their money is still secure. They have to go through me. I notify SCI of the transaction, but that still is going to have the client sign off on that. So there's still a DocuSign process that adds that level of security. So again, it is a little slower, but it does add that extra security of, I know my clients, so I will talk to them first. SEI will follow my instructions, but still have the client sign off on that. And when it comes back to like that, that two-factor authentication, this is what kind of like a broad idea. It doesn't always have to be exactly code that's texted to your phone although that's the most common one uh one of the things i'll do this kind of this is a uh follows that kind of procedure where if the client is trying to transfer money from their sei account to their bank account i will initiate the transaction they'll actually get an email saying sei would like you to sign these documents and they use docusign for electronic signature and so this is one of those things like go back to the specification like how does the client know I'm supposed to e-sign this DocuSign statement because I'm trying to get money out of my account and not click on the link for that phishing email? And what I will do is I'll send a separate email saying you should expect to see this DocuSign email with these instructions in the next few minutes. And this is a, a, a kind of a, uh, a lower form of a two-factor authentication, where if they see that email unprompted, it should raise red flags. But because I'm telling them, they'll get an email from my email address, and then they'll get an email from SCI or, or slash DocuSign for that process. And because they're at the same time and they expect it, that's an additional level of trust and security and so th these are just like different forms of security that SEI uses that I use with clients um, the only ex like way to make that easier which is slightly less secure is if the client signs off on a standing instructions where there's a link between SCI's investment account and the single bank account they do that in advance, and then later on, they the client can call me. I can do it based on just their verbal instructions. We don't have to have that extra step of the DocuSign, but it's only with that one bank account. They can't if it goes anywhere else. They have to sign off on it again, and so that's a. I, th I think that's the kind of theme of two-factor authentication is technology on the custodian side has gotten pretty good where it needs to recognize the computer you're using. It's using your phone number as the second check, which is a kind of two independent processes that can verify. Uh, it's using the advisor as a second check. So kind of th these are the, the different ways of implementing the idea of, of two-factor authentication it's just not the single login, go online and transfer money out. It's, uh, is this coming from an expected source or is this unexpected? So do you have any other examples of anything like that? Two-factor authentication, security procedures that, that you use with clients or like just 
if a client needs to get money out of their account, one, what would raise red flag? Or two, what is your normal process? Right. So the, the high level procedure is money has to go out from the account that it came in from. So it can't just go to some random account that you texted me about, you know, at 5 a.m. in the morning from, you know, just uh, a, a random out of nowhere text. And, you know, the other thing is also to link up the accounts to our system. It does require the DocuSign. And with the DocuSign, you can also add two-factor authentication, meaning the client must have some sort of independent verification that they're the person who's DocuSigning that, that, um, that link for their, their account information. And that can be accomplished actually two ways. So one is with the two-factor authentication. If that's not possible, we also do a knowledge-based test. So you may have seen this from time and again. These are the situations where you need to identify yourself. And what actually happens is a third party pulls, soft pulls, some information from your credit report. And they ask you to say, okay, what car did you have a lease on five years ago? What street did you live on in the past? And you know, th things like that so that they can, the system can assure that you're the person conducting this transaction and not some random person. So an extra level of that, I, I know I'm, I don't know exactly how it works. I'm pretty sure they're pulling public records. And so they'll also pull uh, things like birth certificates. So they can actually say, you are this person that you're related to did they buy property in which of these cities? Because I've gotten that question about asking where my parents have purchased property. Because again, like they can tell that my parents are my parents based on birth certificate and uh, where they have purchased property based on um, uh, public records. So it's like the recent question because my parents moved, they're asking questions about my parents' property purchase history that I, I've never lived there or been there kind of thing. Like I'm not, I've never been involved in that, in that particular address. And that, that's a, an interesting extra level of like mental security that even someone who knows me pretty well probably could not guess the, the answer related to my parents. But also... That's a lot of interesting ways of figuring out figuring that out via public records. <laughs> you know that that did bring up a um, a kind of gotcha. Like you you probably don't want to put your favorite pet's name on Facebook and uh, yeah. your your favorite sport <laughs> and, and stuff like that. <laughs> if these are the three challenge questions that we see all the time. Uh, well, you mentioned the pictures earlier. My picture was always the football or the golf ball or something like that. <laughs> right it's like why would i choose a fish i don't care i i, I have no recollection of fish <laughs> well that's why you choose the fish right <laughs> yes but i'm gonna forget the fish that's the problem <laughs> those things only work if it's like easy for me to remember and difficult for anyone else yeah i i mean that that's why i, I think they are phasing out that and you know frankly the challenge questions are a little too easy from from that perspective as well uh, I, yeah, I think the yeah. two-factor authentication is is taking the lead there especially kind of just the the 
especially within the U.S., among adults, the ubiquity of cell phones and vast majority of the population having a single phone number tied to that individual person. Just kind of um, with landlines going away and cell phones taking over, it's it's – I don't want to say coming a safe assumption, but it's like a good majority assumption that the other person on the, who has that phone number is that person. Right. So this, uh, I'm actually, I, I'd love to hear from listeners of either stories where they almost got caught in a phishing or fraud attempt, or maybe they, they did and what they learned from that. Uh, um, Again, the story my, my wife told about the security expert testing this cor- this company's security features and just how bad it was. It's like felt like any other Silicon Valley story. Like could have been any company. So I I'd love to hear more stories if if any of our listeners want to share. Yeah, for sure. Do, do leave a comment if you have something, or just shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks, Aaron. I enjoyed the conversation. And thanks everybody for listening as well. Bye. Bye. We appreciate you joining us today for this episode of the Mind Money Spectrum podcast. Be sure to visit mindmoneyspectrum.com to access the entire library of episodes. Remember, it's not black and white, but the wide spectrum of gray area where you get to pursue the freedoms you want in life. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical as no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested in directly. Have a nice day.